Hello, and welcome to The Writing Forge, where we discuss tips and tricks for honing your writing. I'm Bonnie. I'm Miranda. And we're your hosts. Let's get get into it. Welcome to The Writing Forge. I'm Bonnie. I'm Miranda. And today we have Gary Ram with us. Welcome, Gary. Well, thank you very much. Um, Well, we're going to be talking a little bit about... Um, how to stimulate interest in science fact through science fiction. But before we get there, why don't we um, let you introduce yourself? How did you get to where you are in the writing world today? Yeah, well, I uh, actually started out as a biology teacher, um, taught biology for a couple of years, but uh, I always wanted to find a way to um, combine my interests in science and art initially and ended up being a graphic artist for uh, 27 years. Uh, But while I was doing that, um, I made contact with um, Ed Bryant's writer's group in Denver. Uh, And so I was a member of of that for a number of years, trying to learn how to write short stories uh, while I was uh, working other jobs. I think one of the things about writers is they always have multiple jobs. (laughs) Um, But I sort of retired uh, at the end of that 27-year period um, and did freelance uh, writing and illustrating work. Uh, I also spent a couple of years as the uh, Society of Children's Book Writers um, and Illustrators uh, co-regional advisor. Um, And so made a career of um, trying to uh, find a particular niche. And um, as it turned out, uh, my interest in science fiction, um, I was able to... um, sell uh, a story eventually to Fulcrum Publishing uh, called The Deep Time Diaries. And I made uh, contact with a teacher named Vicki Jordan, who taught in um, Wellington for many years. And uh, so she was very happy to have um, uh, the parent of one of her former students uh, come in as an author and speak to the classes. And so we developed a curriculum, actually, in incorporating uh, my science fiction tale into the science curriculum, and so that was a lot of fun. And so since that time, um, 2004, I wrote a book about teaching science fact with science fiction, and uh, now I really enjoy the whole concept of trying to stimulate interest in science in, in young kids by um, using their sort of natural interest, I think, in that sense of wonder that you get in science fiction. This is maybe too millennial of me, but, like, I love Magic School Bus. Like, I thought that was a great way to, even as an adult, I'm like, I want to know, you know, why a gallbladder does the things it does. Why didn't Miss Frizzle ever go, you know, look at one of those, but. Yeah, absolutely. No, totally love the Magic School Bus. Absolutely. It was, it was so much fun. That and Wishbone. Yes, Wishbone, that's for literature. (laughs) But that's, yeah, that's for literature and (laughs) classics and other stuff. And so why, um, why is good storytelling important for stimulating interest in science? You know, I think uh, we can really um, owe our interest in storytelling going back to the the very origins of the human species. You know, we... uh, um, take a look at some of those caves in Spain, Altamira, and, and France, La Salle, and so on. And I think storytelling is really just an inherent part of, of being human. 
Um, probably goes back to uh, telling tales around the campfire, you know, uh, about what you did during that day and the mistakes you made and <laughs> how you can avoid them. Um, and one of the very early science fiction stories, um, of course, my history goes back into the 50s and 60s, um, but there was a story by, uh, written by uh, Clifford Simak called City, and it was about um, a time when the human race had uh, decided to leave the planet and explore the rest of the solar system, but they had uh, um, elevated the evolution of dogs to the point where there were sentient dogs who uh, would tell tales about uh, human beings uh, and what they were like and so on. And so stories like that and like... Um, um, Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy were some of the things that really got me excited when I was a youngster. I feel like, um, like you're saying, telling tales at the at the campfire, like that's what makes you remember something. It's a lot like if you ha if you have the image of your mind of of your dad almost getting eaten by a lion or whatever, you're gonna be a lot more careful where there are lions than if they just tell you, you know, watch out for lions. So I think the storytelling is what helps us remember. And, and be interested in, in what's going on. Yeah. That's very true. Um, you know, as being trained as a scientist initially, um, you actually have to unlearn some things because, uh, you know, as a science researcher, you were always supposed to uh, put things in the past tense and uh, you were not supposed to necessarily use active verbs or... Um, anthropomorphizers or any, any of that sort of stuff. And so when I wanted to try to learn how to write fiction, I had to unlearn some of that and uh, uh, try to use the active verbs and storytelling techniques. And now I think it's almost um, um, kind of taken that um, storytelling techniques worth both, work both in fiction and also in nonfiction stuff yeah. that you want to do. I think there's the, the growth of like popular academic things like history or science and, and um, books coming out that, that are totally factual, but trying to be a little bit more creative in how they convey the information. Yeah, I'm just thinking of all the fictional properties and stuff like that and how, like, I don't know, a lot of people know about Greek mythology because they watched <laughs> Hercules, and I'm sure some historians out there are cringing <laughs> and crying right now. Um, but... Yeah, a lot of times we'll remember the story or the medium in which the story was told to us versus the science itself. So you you brought up foundation. Um, what what do you think are some other good examples of science fiction books that are already out there that um, help get young people excited about science? Um, well, I can mention some older books, uh, but I thought I might uh, also mention one book that I just finished, so it's fresh, fresh in my mind, but it's called Mickey Seven. And this was a book written by a fellow who came up with the concept of having sort of a replaceable human that could handle very dangerous situations on a diaspora to actually colonizing um, other solar systems and so on. And so the premise is that uh, Mickey Seven is the seventh clone of this individual. And normally there can only be one at a time, but Mickey Seven was supposed to have died and um, he inadvertently didn't. By the time he got <laughs> back to the dome, uh, there was Mickey Eight out there. And uh, so the story deals uh, both with the problems of deciding, you know, what it means to be human uh, 
but also the science was quite accurate in terms of uh, this diaspora that they postulate about um, leaving a earth that was um, besieged with all kinds of problems um, and wanting to explore nearby uh, stellar systems. Mm. Um, but the only, usually in science fiction, you have to absorb one big whopper, one thing that you have to sort of take. And in the case of this particular story, it was the idea that um, you could power these ships by with antimatter. Uh, and he had a right. system um, in which bubbles of matter and antimatter could um, combine and, and power the ship. But other than that, you know, he didn't violate Einstein's speed limit of the speed of light or <laughs> any of this. All the rest of it was solid science. And I think uh, those kinds of stories where it's an extrapolation of known science and you're uh, being told an entertaining story that doesn't violate any of those situations uh, turn out to be great resources. I was going to say, you kind of touched on it, but I want to draw attention back to it. So how important is it for science fiction writers to be accurate mm -hmm. in the science or at least in their extrapolation of the science? I, you know, um, one of the famous science fiction writers that um, wrote some um, articles on just this topic was Hal Clement, and I don't know whether you're familiar with his mission of gravity or not, but uh, it was a story uh, about uh, this world um, mescaline, you know, that had this race of arthropods and so on. Um, his point was that, uh, in a way, writing science fiction is a little bit of a game between the reader and the writer, <laughs> and that it's the writer's job to uh, set up the situation and describe the science involved in such a way that it's accurate. But a lot of readers sort of delight in maybe finding errors. <laughs> um, and in some in you know, areas of science fiction, there's a lot of crosstalk between writers and readers. His contention was that you need to do the best that job that you can as a writer to get the facts accurate, because if you don't, it sort of takes the reader out of this world you're creating. I know I had one example myself when I read a fictional a book called Aztec some years back. Uh, and it was a great uh, historical um, fiction story uh, about the Aztec Empire and so on. But at one point in the story, they talked about tumbleweeds. And it turns out that tumbleweeds didn't end up in North America until the 19th century. And so <laughs> mm -hmm. if, you're, if you become aware of that, then all of a sudden you think to yourself, what other mistakes did this mm -hmm. writer make? So I think it's... Uh, it's not always critical, but if you're not careful, the reader will sort of lose faith in in your story if you're not really accurate with it. I was say you talked about like the one big lie that um, that you have to get over, and that's like we talk about suspension of disbelief, and that's you you need the reader to suspend their disbelief on that one big thing, but any any other things you need to be as accurate as possible because yeah, you've asked them to do it. They're they're they're. They're suspending their disbelief for the big thing, um, and if you put more weight on that, they're they're more likely to break and be like, "Well, this book is not accurate at all." And I was also thinking too. So I'm an editor, and and I try to find you know errors like that in a book. But realistically, you can't catch everything. But you want to do as much as you possibly can. And and we had an episode on this already about like getting experts to read your book and. Um, 
So, so you want to do your research, but also maybe don't let that paralyze you into not right. writing something. Well, the other cool thing, too, is that sometimes you can use it to your advantage. Like um, the one book that I wrote, The Deep Time Diaries, was uh, involved uh, a trip through deep time uh, by this family who had to make their way back to the present. And I did the illustrations for the book as well. And, of course, I made the illustrations based on the paleontology that was accurate at the time I wrote the book, which was in the late 90s. But um, one of the illustrations um, I created was of uh, um, an ornithomimus, which is an ostrich-like dinosaur. And at the time, they thought the dinosaur was terrestrial uh, because they only had some of the um, – postcranial skeleton. They didn't have the skull. Um, but later on, um, they did find a skull, and they found out that it was actually more of a shore dinosaur with a filter-feeding <laughs> mechanism and so on. So when I used to go in and talk to uh, Vicki Jordan's class, I would say, um, oops, you know, this one illustration now is not correct because science has moved forward and found some new information, but, you know, that can be valuable too. Um, if you're looking at more of a historical story. I think that's definitely important to keep in mind. And and in some ways, things like that are cool. I mean, I like history, so I like to look at something like that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, back in the 90s, they thought this thing. And um, so it, that, that can be a feature and not a bug. <laughs> we yeah. didn't think dinosaurs <laughs> had feathers. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we're, uh, and this is something that, might be audience dependent. The phrase that I've heard the most is that science fiction is precursor to science fact. Um, and so is that where we start getting into hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi is like something like Star Trek. How, how hard of a sci-fi genre is that? How much of the science in Star Trek is accurate or how much of it is just telling a story and coming up with all of this possible future technology that then inspires someone to try and go develop that. Yeah, I think um, Star Trek as a genre wasn't too bad. In fact, um, I can remember watching the first stuff when I was a college student still. Um, and um, a lot of future engineers for NASA were big Star mm -hmm. Trek fans and so on. And so... Star Trek did a reasonable job um, interpreting possibilities uh, based on the science of the time. Mm -hmm. In fact, their sort of uh, flip communicator was a lot like some of the flip phones <laughs> and whatnot that came uh, afterward. Um, and one of the interesting things um, about Star Trek was that they were able to tell stories involving human beings that censors wouldn't allow in certain other contexts, like a straight story. Mm. Um, but based in this future world, all of a sudden it was acceptable, for example, that uh, you had an interracial kiss for the first time and, yes. and things of that sort. So um, Star Trek was a real groundbreaker uh, that uh, sort of... Um, change some of the rules about imaginative storytelling, I think. Mm. 
Well, I think maybe maybe this is a little off topic, but what I like about science fiction is that we're looking at a, a world in the future that we don't live in, but it has people just like people now. And so you, you, you go through the questions of, you know, like, what is a human? And, and those are questions that go through society or like, what does it mean to be X or um, so, so exploring cultural things also, not just scientific, but um, sociocultural phenomena. Yeah. And I think, you know, the genre really got much better um, in the 60s when more women got involved <laughs> because <laughs> a lot of the very early pulp science fiction was very idea-based and uh, the I- ideas became more important actually than the characterization. Um, but uh, once some of the um, uh, women got involved, and sometimes they had to use male pseudonyms in the beginning, like James Chiptree Jr. And, and as is one example, and uh, many others. And uh, another uh, woman writer I really loved was Octavia Butler, mm. um, who was about my generation, actually, although she died much too early. Uh, but she had some very groundbreaking stuff. Um, and so I think a lot of the science fiction that you're seeing now is much more competent from a, um, as legitimate literary stories than they used to be at the very beginning. So maybe as like our wrapping up question, um, I was talking about, you know, using sci-fi to get interest, to make us think philosophically about other things. But I also think other genres can make us think about science and, and, and the real world. Um, have you have you seen that in any other genres besides science fiction? Um, yeah, in fact, now I've never been a, a, a real huge fan of fantasy. Apologies to no those of you who <laughs> it's are not, into it's that. It's not for everyone. It's but, okay. Um, I have uh, uh, become friends with uh, Todd Mitchell, and uh, he writes some excellent fantasy, and they definitely has ecological themes, which certainly uh, can be validly. Uh, talked about. Um, uh, Avatar was another uh, movie like that, which uh, was kind of a combination of uh, fantasy and science fiction, kind of on a borderline. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, I think you certainly can use um, fantasy many times as a jump uh, start as well. Um, I know there's a number of books out there that were based on the the science of Star Trek, for example, um, and I'm sure that uh, you could do the same thing with other genres. Uh, Gene Owl's books are almost uh, like romances, uh, but there's a lot of solid anthropology in there, too, as well. Yeah, I was thinking about, like, Bones. I mean, I guess that's kind of science fiction, but but there's, like, mystery that can get you to look at the science and, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. There were some things that I would have quibbled about in some of the bones episodes <laughs> and, and whatnot as well. But uh, it was a f- fun concept, and it was fun to follow the characters for sure. This has been a great episode. Thank you so much for coming in and joining us today. Well, it's uh, always fun to talk about science fiction and uh, connecting it to science facts. So thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Um, we like to end with a question for our listeners. Um, so. Guess what? What's your favorite sci-fi out there? What has inspired you the most? What generated interest in a topic that you might not have otherwise had? That's a better way to put it. Thanks. Stay sharp, my friends. (laughs) 
That's all the time we have for today, folks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Writing Forge, an NCW podcast brought to you by Nagano Press. To learn more about The Writing Forge and our parent company, Northern Colorado Writers, be sure to check out our website at northerncoloradowriters.com. Check out our social links in the description. You can subscribe to The Writing Forge wherever podcasts are aired. If you like this episode, you'd really help us out by rating and reviewing. If you're looking for more informational writing content, be sure to become an NCW member. Stay sharp, my friends. Thank you.